Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. And here to help us out today is a very special guest, Leah Helena Rubinoff. I've recorded a few dialogues with Leah, but this is the first one we're going to release, so it's almost like releasing them in a random order. But that's okay. It's non-linear, and it'll all make sense anyway. It's the nature of love wisdom. And Leah is a philosopher. She's a philosopher with graduate training in philosophy of mind and perception, looking at both the science and, of course, the philosophy, which is superior to the science, but the scientists are trying to catch up to the wisdom traditions. That's okay. They're doing it, and they're finding very interesting things. Leah is also an artist, very talented creative, and a certified nutrition consultant. And she's here to talk to us today about a more holistic and spiritual approach to diet, health, well-being, and cultural transformation. In particular, she's going to talk to us about enlightened craving. That sounds like an excuse to eat chocolate cake, Leah. Tell me, can I eat my way to enlightenment? Um, maybe. Okay. <laughs> A confirmed maybe means I am going to sit and hear the rest. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here again. Yes, you're, you're, you're always welcome. I wish you would come back every week, but at least I have you for today. I will save for the moment. Ah, yes, another part of enlightened craving is learning to savor. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. Well, tell us more. Tell us about this enlightened craving. Yeah, so I think one important thing with enlightened craving is to uh, reconceptualize craving. Oftentimes cravings are seen as a negative thing or something that uh, we fall victim to within ourselves. So one important aspect of enlightened craving is that these cravings are actually a doorway to um, our inner needs. So by by becoming aware of our cravings and spending time with our cravings, we actually can access these deeper parts of ourselves and come to understand some more important things that we, that we need in our lives. So for instance, um, a lot of people have sugar cravings. So sugar is sweet and sweet is the most nourishing taste of the six tastes. Um, sweet things tend to have the most nutriment within them. So if someone is craving something sweet, perhaps they're actually craving nourishment on a deeper level. Um, it's not that piece of cake that they really genuinely need, but perhaps some deeper nourishment. So whether that be um, love or compassion or wisdom, that there could be something deeper there that, that the, the, the body the mind, the soul is asking for. So that's, that's a big aspect is learning to become aware of our cravings and seeing these as doorways into our, our deeper needs. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because the, the soul doesn't usually flash a sign that says B12 in our mind. We don't get like a neon sign B12, you know, the soul doesn't necessarily think that that's what it needs anyway, because it's probably much more holistic, but we get a craving It's trying to drive us to do something, but somehow or other that craving is like an encumbered energy and it ends up binding us and creating problems because why we don't know how to hear it right. Or I mean, we do feel victim as you say, you know, I mean, it's not so, it'd be nice if we were like, oh, I'm craving, craving sweet. That must mean and my first thought is wisdom, not Twinkies. But it's, <laughs> I usually feel like I got to go grab a Twinkie, man. Yeah. So this is where um, the practice comes in. So there, there's a lot that we don't understand about nutrition in the first place. So it's very easy to fall into these habits that perhaps are not in our best interest. 
um, especially with the, you know, the food industry being what it is, being an industry rather than, you know, uh, a place of healing and nourishment. Um, it's, we, we grow up with foods that are too sweet, too salty, um, too fatty and, you know, low quality, sweet, you know, refined sugar, refined flour, um, damaged fats. And because we don't genuinely connect with nature, with raw foods, um, or wild foods, you know, doesn't necessarily just have to be raw, but wild foods, um, because, you know, we get our food in grocery stores because a lot of food comes in packages, really the, um, the kind of the space that we're sampling from has already been processed to such a high level that that's what we're in relationship with. So rather than being in relationship with these genuine um, earthly nutrients, we're in relationship with this processed food. So then when we crave sweet, you know, as a young child and we have cookies um, instead of a carrot, our, our bodily system starts to understand cookies as what we want when we want sweet. And then carrots stop tasting as sweet. And so carrots, you know, we lose sight of the carrot and we focus on the cookie. Um, So I'm not sure if I laid that out well, but that's, I believe, part of the process of what happens and why we become so confused. And that's just on the, the physical, the bodily level. Yeah. Now, of course, as a side note, carrots today have been bred to be a lot sweeter if we were a thousand years ago or more, I don't know how far back, probably a lot of development in the past few centuries. But if we went back uh, at least a thousand years, carrots wouldn't have, they probably to us wouldn't taste sweet. Maybe they did to people back then. So there's there's something there about losing... um, the sense of what sweetness should be should be related with but then also it's like saying that when we experience a craving for something like similarly to when we experience anxiety our 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 idea might be oh i have to go get the anxiety treated because i don't want to have the anxiety and instead though the soul could be giving us the anxiety because the soul has both a, a concern about something that might be happening in the larger world and also wants to give us the energy to deal with it so that the anxiety might be perfectly appropriate whenever there's all this environmental breakdown. And if we just cure the anxiety, we might feel better, but then we've sort of denied the soul having an expression. And so it sounds like you're also making a similar, when you say that it could be you know some kind of gateway or something there, there's a real need. And, and we don't want to just write over that need, but we want to find a, a way to hear it better and understand what it, it's asking. Is that right? Yeah. Exactly. And this is actually, um, it reminds me of something they talk about in Tibetan medicine, which is um, healing the cause rather than healing the effect. <clears throat> so healing the, excuse me, healing the effect would be um, something that happens in Western medicine, for instance, when you kind of chase around symptoms and you, you try to subdue symptoms and that often um, turns into another symptom or another problem because you're not actually healing the cause. Whereas healing the cause means that we, we look at what's going on and it becomes an internal process of, okay, what, what am I dealing with? You know? So in the case of this anxiety and anxiety would be a symptom of whatever the cause is, right? So the anxiety is because the, the world feels wrong to us or because we're, let's say doing a job that we don't actually feel called to do. That feels like um, it's taking our time and there's no meaning in the job. So we feel anxiety about the job. So, you know, taking medication for the anxiety is not going to solve the problem of, you know, we have the wrong job. Um, so in, in the case of healing the cause, we're actually looking at, okay, what is bringing this anxiety to the surface? And let me take a deeper look at this. Yeah. And it sounds too like you're, you use the word internal, but it sounds like you're talking about also a different relationship to the outside world too. So I'm not sort of going exclusively inward. But somehow you it's it, what what aspect of this I mean how much of a role does that play trying to have a different relationship to nature yeah so the internal you know working with the internal is I guess um, getting a a view of ourselves 
and then being able to um, reapproach the external. So, um, you know, instead of just accepting the paradigm that we're living in and saying, okay, well, I need money to survive. Um, I need to get a job. This is the first job that came my way. It seems to pay. Okay. So let me, let me dive in. Um, we're actually going inward first to say, okay, but what are my values? Um, how do I want to relate to the world? Um, what, what's important to me? What would I feel good doing? And then with this right view with this refined view, um, we can better approach the external world. So we create a better relationship with the external world and draw um, these aspects of the external world uh, towards us that better mirror our inner work. Did that that answer the question? I think so, yeah. And because, um, well, there's also something that you're bringing up about the old philosophical starting place, which is, you know, we, we pursue all these ends and Socrates was saying, okay, stop doing that. And first you really need to ask the question, who am I? What, what is what is my nature and what is the nature of reality? And, and you have to go on the basis of that because otherwise you, you can, apparently human beings are really good at chasing one thing after another. And some of those things we get, some of them we don't. But he was saying, you're going to wreck the world and you're going to wreck your soul at the same time. And that seems like this may be part of what you're getting at there. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly, that's a big aspect of it. And what is that like to bring that into the present day, though, because Socrates wasn't very good at it? I mean, don't you, do you find this, (laughs) what, what, what kinds of challenges come up trying to get this turned toward the soul? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's ever easy in, um, in unenlightened culture. So how do we, well, how do we bring it to the foreground now? I mean, you know, with the enlightened craving, we focus on health and happiness first. So cultivating that, that perspective of healthy living, I think helps bring that to being in society. But I, I, I think I'm not, I'm not sure if this is an exactly appropriate answer to your question, but I think, you know, some of what we're doing here is we're actually creating new parts of our culture through this process. I think that's a potential for the process of enlightened craving, because when we truly attune to um, our inner values and our inner wisdom, we have the capacity to bring that to fruition in society Mm. um, because we're building it. Right. So um, when we were speaking about uh, radical embodied cognitive science and um, relative and relativistic ways of, relating to the world that that's exactly um, enlightened craving is that philosophy in action. So our relationship with the world is, is what creates the world. So we must relate to the world um, with our values in heart and mind um, and with, with wisdom. Um, So we're not, we're not approaching it absentmindedly. Um, you know, we're not approaching it as zombies. We're we're actually cultivating ourselves and then reapproaching the world with this new view, so that we can help bring these relationships into the world. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really radical proposal, then, because it's saying, okay, you you usually you might come to a, a certified nutrition consultant, and you expect me to come up with a diet plan and a weight loss plan and an exercise plan. But what I'm going to invite you into is a create a new culture plan. <laughs> and and, some, and I might just be like, I just want to lose 20 pounds, man. And you're like, no, you're going to have to make a new culture. I mean, that might sound extreme, but there's a way in which you're suggesting that, right? No, oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. And it's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. You know, a lot of people don't have that mentality when they want to lose 20 pounds. Right. They're very, they're very self-focused. They have specific goals and, um, you know, it's not to belittle that goal because losing 20 pounds can help you be healthier. It can help you be happier in a lot of ways, but, um, we don't want to lose sight of the deeper process once we reach that 20 pound weight loss goal, because if you don't take, or if one does not take, um, the inner process, um, 
along with the outer process of let's say losing 20 pounds, then once you reach that goal, you have the potential to, you know, just fall victim to the, the patterns that you were participating in before that led you to gain those 20 pounds in the first place. There's no guarantee that anything's really genuinely changed. Sure. Your body composition has changed, but um, your, your means of engaging with the world has not changed. So, you know, we've, you know, to reach this goal without, kind of a deeper philosophical underpinning of what we're, what we're truly searching for here. Um, you lose the 20 pounds and then you go back into the, the ways of behaving that you, that you used to go through. And then you hit that, that situation again, where you gain 20 pounds and you don't know why. So we really do need to understand that. Okay. Well, I want to lose these 20 pounds because I want to be healthy and I want to be healthy because I want to be happy and I want to be happy. And I want to, um, you know, live a life of compassion and service and wisdom. And that, that aspect right there, I be, you know, living a life, life of service and feeling compassion and gaining wisdom is not something that a lot of people, um, consciously value it's not necessarily that something that a lot of people bring with them in their day-to-day life lives it's not necessarily something that a lot of people have thought about um or genuinely considered however whether or not this is a conscious thing it's still a thing in people um you know we still are part of a community we still do need each other we need um love in our lives which you know, I think is clear to everybody when they genuinely reflect on that. So why do we not consider that aspect um, of ourselves when we try to make life changes? You know, we need to recognize that if we really want to make a genuine change. And it's what you said, there's just got a lot in it in the sense. So for one thing, one of the things that you touched on is that we can pursue something that we think we want then we get it. But because we've ignored the soul, we end up either not happy even while we have it, because that thing wasn't good. You weren't really going to be, that was not going to be the key to your happiness. Um, and then it might also be that I go back to where I started. So, But even if I keep the weight off, it's like, hey, my butt looks great, but that was never going to make me happy, and I can't take that with me when I go, right? But then there's this other thing that you're touching on, which is that I can, if I don't have a holistic vision, and I don't really decide, well, what we, what the reason why we have issues with what to eat and how to be healthy is that the culture is just so screwy. And so if I don't really revision myself in the world, then what happens is I can lose the weight, but the process I use to lose the weight is part of the self-help catastrophe. So that means that I get healthy and the world has to get less healthy because I use that extractive approach to it. I order my supplements from all over the place and I get all this stuff and now I've got a mountain of plastic and I've got foods that, that I shouldn't even be eating. They're not part of my local ecology and all this. And I get my health goal, but I did it at the expense of the world. That's the self-help catastrophe classic approach. So what, I mean, what do you do to, I mean, are, is your ideal person someone who just already says I'm done with that? Or what would you do if to try to help someone see th- that that approach is problematic? Do you, th- do you even think, and here's, I don't know if this is adding too many questions, but do you even think that like that's part of what the craving comes to? Is that there's something like the enlightened craving would be, I wouldn't crave my own well-being at the expense of the rest of the world somehow. I mean, how do I even hear that? This is a nest of those two questions because you just there's so much in what you said. It's like holy crap. Okay, anyway. Yeah, that that's a tough question because there are well first, you know, addressing the individual who wants to make a change in in their life. Um what level are they ready? to, um, to participate in the world, right? You know, there, there needs to be to really participate in enlightened craving. I think that there does need to be an understanding that we are in a larger ecology, that this is not a self-centered process. That step right there, I would say a lot of people are not even ready for that step right there, that first step. Um, 
So it, it can be a difficult sell. For yeah, because isn't that the mess? I mean, this is the mess we're in is that we want what we want. And we're not going to be stopped if if that means that there'll be a cost to the world. Like, that's not enough to stop us. But but isn't that like already, like you think how massive the nutrition, wellness, diet industry, like the wellness industrial complex is so huge. It must be like a trillion dollars or something. Um, like that is so huge. And nobody in that complex, or let's say that's ridiculous. You're talking about it, but you're a minority voice in that that massive wellness industrial complex and this little voice saying, okay, but you can't pursue your wellness at the expense of ecological and spiritual realities. I mean, boy, that's the, isn't that half the revolution? How are you going to get that message? What can you tell us, Leah? Please (laughs) preach preach on this. Come on, Leah. I think this is where we need to start the practice. This is where the personal practice begins. You know, if we, if we eat mindfully and if we, um, really dive into that process, then I think the rest follows, you know, with a solid practice, with a solid personal practice, we start to recognize I am not separate from anything around me. You know, we're all one, you know, the, the awareness of, let's see, the awareness of my own habits, um, brings, kind of a larger vision of the world. So that's pretty big. Um, well, that's interesting. Can I ask, is is the craving part of that gateway? I mean, can, can I look at my own, the difficulties I might be experiencing in my own body, whether it's I don't have the muscle mass I want, I, I have too much, whatever it is that's going on in my body and the cra- and also the craving. So we could say this constellation of symptoms of the cravings I experience and the the illness or problems I experience in my body and mind. It, it, can that be the gateway to see that, well, oh, I see, I need to help the world because I usually don't think that way. I mean, can you, could you, would you say anything like that is true? And if so, can you maybe talk about it a little? I don't know. It's the best way to approach this. So I think well, I mean, I think so one of one of the important things around this is to bring mindfulness to our own actions. And so for instance, taking a moment when you feel a craving. Say, okay, what is this pointing at? And um maybe taking five minutes of meditation around this craving. So, you know, if you, if you start this practice and you say, I'm having a sugar craving. Okay. It's 11 PM. I'm ready for bed, but I'm having a sugar craving. I'm not hungry. So what is this? And taking five minutes and, and, and really sitting with this craving and experiencing it. Um, where do you feel it in your body? Where, do, how do you feel emotionally? Um, is it moving? Is it becoming anything? Does it have any communication for you? Um, taking this process into account, um, I think starts to reveal the larger picture. Um, but I'm not sure how we, how we get directly into the, into the, um, the external world of it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it does have to be, again, something that we go back to the philosophical traditions for where, you know, this is what the sages are trying to teach in part. But I, 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 it sounds like you're in, in part you're trusting us to be able to find it, that if I did the, the di- strange thing of pausing and instead of looking at the craving as some kind of enemy or something that I thought, oh, okay, what if I just look directly at it and maybe it has something to say or maybe if I could allow it to be unencumbered rather than in this encumbered energy, I might see something about the world and, and you say that would open me up, I could find it there. But then I, I, I guess I was just suggesting maybe that we could, if we reflected that way, that the classic story I use I was that I uh, knew a naturopathic doctor and she was talking to me about a client. I may have told you this story probably a million times, but 
she had this client who became allergic to her car. And so as a good naturopathic doctor, she worked with her to rebalance her system. And then now she can drive her car. And I said, well, that's really wonderful. I'm glad you helped her. But if we were in a different culture and that woman were a shaman, she would announce to the village, you see those things? They're no good. You know, because you can't drive around a pollution machine and think that that's okay for the world. So what I was suggesting then is the soul is saying, yes, I'm allergic to this. I'm making your body experience allergicness to this because it's a stupid thing that you need to be really more sensitive to than you are. Everybody else just gets in them and pollutes the world. And no, you, my friend, I want you to hear that there's a problem with this. And what did the naturopath do? She just erased the symptom. And ideally, like with a wellness, because it's a naturopath. So she was like looking at the whole person and balancing all this, but missed this gateway. And so maybe it just t takes... I don't know, a critical commitment to seeing the interwovenness of things more deeply. I don't know, what, what would you say about that story or how would it connect to what we're talking about? Well, and I think why I was struggling to answer that is because I don't, there's no logical connection to why this is so, but I, I think I was searching for a logical connection. But I, I think that, you know, with the practice you find um, that it is revealed, this larger connection to to the world outside of us is revealed. Um, and... <clears throat> We, you know, the body and the soul, the psyche, you know, we're, we're ready to heal bit by bit. You know, we're not necessarily ready to take the whole thing at once. So this woman who became allergic to her car, she was probably at a point in her life where she was ready to see the toxicity that driving her car um, creates in the world, right? She was probably at a point where she could handle this truth, and that's why her body said, hey, this is the time we address this. You know, and the, the naturopath just said, forget that. You know, we don't need to deal with that right now. Let's just keep driving the car. I can, I can help you with this. Um, but, you know, her soul was saying, hey, this is time to look at this. So with this, with this enlightened craving, with this mindfulness practice, when bit by bit, these truths are revealed to us as we're ready to take them in. So I think at the beginning, when someone's not quite ready to see the connection between, you know, having protein powder in their, in their shakes every day and um, the impact that that leaves on the world, they start a mindfulness practice around this. And then they really, they get in touch with, okay, every day, um, you know, I, I sit with my with myself for a minute before I make my shake and then I drink my shake mindfully. You know, I feel the feelings in my mouth. I feel what it feels like when I swallow it, where it goes, and then I sit with I sit with myself after as I'm digesting it, after I'm digesting it and I check in with my energy levels and um you start to get these impressions um when you're really focused on this. So um, and once you're in touch with this process, you might see, you know what, it actually feels kind of weird to have protein powder. You know, I'm noticing that the taste is a little off or my body feels a little weird. I actually can't finish the shake now. You know, I'm two weeks into this practice and there's just something that's not exactly right for me here. And I feel like maybe I don't want this protein powder in my shake anymore. Um, I, I, I bring that particular example up because I, I've noticed this with um, these very, you know, they're supposedly cleanly made with clean ingredients, but it's a, it's a protein bar that I've had from time to time. And I notice, you know, if I'm really hungry, I might grab one, but then I have a few bites and I just, I recognize this is not food. You know, there's something that happens in my body where I feel a little hot and um, it just doesn't, it's not satiating. There's something where feel like I got a little bit of energy, but it's just not right. And I don't finish it. Um, and I don't need them anymore. Um, because I was paying attention to how my body feels when I'm eating this thing. And this is not a genuine food. You know, it's a very processed thing. It takes a lot of energy to make it. There's packaging. Um, it's shipped from a distance. And it's just not something that our body is has evolved to eat. Um, it's not something that our body is really familiar with. And it's not, it's not it's not a natural, even though it's made with natural ingredients and it's organic and it's, you know, quote unquote, cleanly made. Um, it's still not 
whole. It doesn't come from the earth. There's less information in it. There's less, you know, the DNA isn't there. The DNA of the plants are not communicating with my DNA. And there's something there that's saying, you know, you're eating dead food. Um, so I think with this process, when we really tune into ourselves, what we're eating, how we're eating, you know, even are we eating mindfully? Are we chewing completely? Are we just shoving food down our throats? Um, we start to recognize these relationships and we tune into the subtleties of it. And then that actually teaches us, you know, is this food good for me or when is this food good for me? Um, and how do I treat this food and where am I sourcing it from? Um, yeah. So I do think ultimately it's the process and it's the practice that leads us to this larger realization, which again is a very tough sell for people who are not necessarily um, open-minded about the larger ecology of their dietary plans. Mm. Yeah. There's a bad, it's a kind of unskillful vision and we lack that sense of relationality that you investigated so thoroughly in your uh, formal academic philosophical work. I was thinking too of how, because you there was a, as usual, there's a lot in what you said. You, you were touching in part on the reason why I every client I work with. But when I was in the university, I wouldn't teach a course without talking about ecology. And that's in the philosophy department, right? So even a logic course. But I wouldn't talk about ecology until I had given the students compassion training. Because you you began with the idea that this, well, the soul starts to feel that you're ready to hear something. But the part of the wisdom traditions, what they tell us is, no, you have to learn that you can uh, deal with difficult things. You have to find your capacity for compassion and wisdom and equanimity in the face of challenge. And they bring that out in us. Uh, and obviously, say, like in the Stoic, uh, it's really, or oh, Buddhist traditions, a lot of traditions have almost a warrior option path, you know, right, where you have, you become a spiritual warrior, but there's that strength, that sort of, like you're practically a, a SEAL Team 6 kind of person when you're facing these challenges. But then I was also thinking about how, uh, when I trained in the Alexander Technique, my teacher related, when she was doing her training program, there were some people who were smokers, and everybody would go outside for a smoke break, and the non-smokers would go too. And, and they just started talking about how, well, I wonder if there's any way we could use the Alexander Technique to deal with, uh, you know, it's such a t difficult addiction, hard to quit. And I said, well, why, why, how about this? We'll, the non-smokers will, will work on, the, the, this is how Alexander Technique teachers talk about it, where I'll work on you. And what they mean is bringing this practice, this, it's really uh, awareness, and acceptance and connection and non-doing. So how do you non-do your habit? Well, it turns out that after receiving work for a few times, the smokers didn't want to smoke anymore. Just naturally, when the habit pattern, they, you know, they were free to smoke. It was just, but while you're smoking, you're going to do it very mindfully, and you're going to non-do the whole thing. You non-do the cigarette up to your lips and non-do inhaling it. And so when you non-do it, you just go, well, this is dumb, and you're done, <laughs> you're done with it. And uh, so I thought that was such an interesting experiment. I wish we could formalize it, but I, 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 I like the things that you're touching on it somehow or other. So what else um, would be part of the practice of enlightened craving? Well, actually, <clears throat> what you just said about the smoking um, also made me think about, you know, forcing diet plans on people who want to make changes, right? It's not saying you're doing a diet. So I think in that same way where you can do a diet for whatever, a month, three months, six months, however long it takes you to reach your goal, but you just did it, right? And so once you supposedly complete your goal, you stop doing the diet. And now what are you left with, right? Because you're, you're not doing the diet anymore, but you haven't learned how to non-do life. You know, you haven't really learned how to be receptive to what your body needs. You haven't learned how to eat more intuitively, how to listen to the food, how to listen to your body and make those connections. So you're kind of left at the end of it with, you know, no, no methodology or no true, you haven't learned anything. Mm. Right? You did something for a while, um, but you haven't actually grown as an individual to 
to really um, incorporate these lessons and then move forward um, on a new path of health. And, you know, I'm some of the, the coaching traditions and the, uh, you know, dietary plans talks about maintenance okay, now you're in the maintenance phase. So let's say you're doing a low carb diet. So now you can incorporate a bit more carbs, you know, one more serving of carbs or something during the day. So now you're doing this maintenance, but ultimately what we generally find is that um, that's hard to keep up with because then you have to do this maintenance. So it's still not an um, incorporated embodied skill. It actually is something that you're forcing on yourself. Um, and so the same problems will inevitably arrive, arise because again, you, you know, you've, um, you, you haven't healed the cause you've healed the effects. And it sounds like part of what, part of the skill that you're learning is maybe the, the, that perception is a skill that, because I, I, you're, um, one of the most sensitive people I know. So there might, there's probably a lot of people thinking, I don't know that I would be so sensitive. I drink a protein shake. I feel great. But maybe it's because there's a need to retune our sensory capacities to be able to notice things that we're kind of running roughshod over. Um, do you think people are able to do that? What, what's your view? But you're so sensitive. Are you? Have you had success teaching people to become more sensitive? I think we're all capable. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I have cultivated my own sensitivity, but it was a long portion of my life where I ignored that sensitivity and I was a much more left brained oriented person and much more logical and analytical about everything. And, you know, I slowly started reopening the sensitivities and it was a lot, you know, it was a lot to handle. There were a lot of feelings. Um, there's a lot of healing to do. Um, but, I, it was a very important step because the, the other way that I was navigating the world was uh, very painful and very difficult. Um, there was a lot more stress, a lot more anxiety. Um, you know, I was hiding a lot of, uh, I mean, for lack of a better term, traumas in my own body, hiding them from myself. And so as I started to peel back those layers and let go of my defenses, yeah, there were, there was a lo- there were a lot of feelings and a lot of sensitivity, and then that spiritual warrior that you're speaking of that that became something that I had to cultivate. I had to learn how to face these things and take it bit by bit because it is overwhelming to be so sensitive. You know, you can have an interaction where you're walking down the street and someone looks at you funny and you, you feel hurt and offended and you carry that with you because you're so sensitive to the engagement you just had with someone. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not necessarily an easy path, but I do think we're all very capable of it. It's just a question of do you want to start down that path? And um, I think some people don't, um, but I think we all need to. You know, I do feel like we're at a time in our culture where we all really do need to get in, in touch with our sensitivities and um, embrace them and learn how to to live with them so that we can you know build a more peaceful and healthy world and take care of each other. Um, cause that is actually our power. You know, once you are in touch with these, <clears throat> these sensitivities, um, there is a lot more information that's available in the world and there's, um, a lot less fear and, um, you know, the, the compassion practice, um, that you were speaking about earlier, that's such an important step because that, that is very healing. And that is actually what what can bring us together is that compassion and that understanding that we're all having an experience here in the world. Um, And we're all pretty much in the same place with different details. Um, So yeah, though it might not be at the forefront for a lot of people, it's, it's a skill to cultivate. And I actually have noticed with, with certain clients who, you know, came to me with very specific, you know, quantitative goals. Like I want to lose 15 pounds and build muscle that, you know, and I took them at face value and I'm like, okay, let's work towards this goal. But also, you know, do you mind doing some meditation every day? And, um, you know, you, you keep eating sugar late at night. Can we look at that? And can we maybe do some mindfulness practice around it? Maybe spend some time in meditation with that experience. And they've really grown a lot, you know, and they've, they've recognized, oh my God, this is bigger than just, you know, the nutrition facts of what I'm eating. Um, and have made these changes towards more sensitivity and noticed some, some subtleties in what they're eating and how it affects them. And it's really, it's amazing to see, 
you know, it's such a beautiful process and the, uh, you know, the level of gratitude they feel, um, for being more in touch with themselves is, is amazing. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about the degree to which the elevation of craving and, um, how that relates to the addictive pathways that the dominant culture uses, you know, that we know that the people at Facebook and other companies were purposefully tapping into pathways of addiction and that part, maybe part of the sense of a more enlightened craving would be to recognize the reason why craving is so out of control is that we don't get those nutriments that you're talking about. We don't get, you know, time with our soul, meditation, more sensitivity to the natural world and being in contact with the natural world, just unstructured time in nature. So all the, and the real whole local grown food, rather than something that was shipped, you know, unripe from far away and all this, that because we don't, we're not getting those things, it's just like we're, that's why consumption continues to grow like oddly that we're st we're in such consumption overdrive um what uh i mean what what role do you think that plays and uh, i don't know what, what what can you say about any of that i mean there's a lot there um but i i do think there's a big problem with um satiation you know recognizing what it is to feel satisfied what it is to feel fulfilled um, again, coming back to just bringing awareness to the experience, you know, people can just overeat, you know, over, overeating is a big problem. Um, part of it, I mean, there's a lot of reasons people overeat, but, um, you know, one of the big things is that the food they're eating doesn't have the appropriate nutrients to create a feeling of sati satiation. Like for instance, they're eating potato chips instead of, um, you know, something with, with minerals and, and healthy fats in it. So they're not actually reaching the nutrients that their body is asking for. So they eat the whole bag of chips and they still want something more because they just haven't, you know, technically fulfilled that need, but there's also the experience of satiation, um, and recognizing, okay, I am full, you know, eating more slowly and noticing as food drops into your belly and as a, you know, is absorbed into the intestines and recognizing that process and um, realizing, oh, I'm actually full, even though I haven't eaten everything on my plate, but I can stop now because I, I, I feel full. Um, and again, it's the attention. We're not putting attention into our stomach. Um, we're not putting attention into our body. Um, we might be eating with the TV on, you know, there's a lot of distractions. So we're watching TV and we're just mindlessly shoveling food into our face and then our plate's gone. So we think we're done, you know, or the food's gone off of our plate. Ideally we haven't eaten the plate too, but you know, who knows? Um, so, you know, instead of getting the bodily signals, we're just, we're just, you know, eating all the food on the plate. Um, so there's a, a lack of listening. And I think um, that's a big part of the problem that we're seeing, you know, in this um, kind of information overload, you know, there's constantly stimulation. So there's never any quiet, there's never any silence or any space for us to really attune to ourselves, to listen to our bodies, to our minds, to, to our soul, to um, whatever little voice in us or um, experience in us is telling us, you know, we're full or what particular food we might want, um, or, you know, that we're actually in need of genuine human connection, compassion, love, or that, you know, we feel confused about the world and we really are seeking wisdom. Um, you know, those little signals are completely um, outshined by social media or, you know, Netflix um, or just, you know, overpowering um, salty, fatty foods or, you know, too much sugar, whatever it is, it's this stimulation overload. Um, so really, you know, this currency, especially in social media, the currency in a lot of ways is our attention. Um, it is our awareness. So we can, we are being disempowered by giving our attention to these platforms and just, you know, mindlessly streaming through them. And our attention is just kind of on this, you know, never ending news feed um, from social media, but we really do have the power to 
pause, you know, take our attention back and, and be with ourselves in the moment. And that's when all these, these subtleties become available to us. Um, but yeah, society is really capitalized on stimulation and overstimulation to really blast our sensory apparatus so that we cannot tell one thing from the other or in just the sea of bright lights and loud noises. Hmm. Yeah. And, and in some ways it's all, then it's like not being able to tell one meal from another because it just all uh, constructed in a scientific way to create those addiction, uh, you know, those addiction bearing qualities that it, it's, it's really triggering addiction pathways because they want to achieve that bliss point. And as you point out, is like, since it's fat, sugar, and salt, that bliss point, I experience it. And then the soul or the larger psyche or system is saying, that's funny, you're eating the right thing, and I'm still not getting the nutrient, keep trying. And so then we, we keep trying. But, but then there's, uh, you're, you've touched on just all the way, there's so many dimensions to it, you know, that, like, there's all the, all the uh, sensuality. And we don't realize that we are just like hungering for the sensual intimate experience of being alive. It's not just that you, Oh my God, I have to go and have sex right now. It's that, well, no, it's, you don't know what else to do with a call that might be much grander than that. It's not to say that sex isn't great. It's just that, you know, when's the last time that you really felt the incredible sensuality and and joy of being simply being alive and and being in a a rich relationship with, with uh, nature, with, you know, we're all in boxes and we're staring at boxes and uh, it's like a crazy, the whole thing is like enlightened. If like the culture, there's a, this craving, this crazy structure of craving and how do you liberate all of that? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the key to enlightened craving is understanding what, what craving really is and what we really are craving. Right. So we're kind of reclaiming craving. Um, Taking craving back. Taking craving back. And now this relates to a little bit to um, Fred Provenza's work, right? Um, there's, it's almost like he did a lot of the science uh, for you, not that there isn't other science that you're aware of too that uh, supports what you're talking about, but can you relate a little bit of, about what he's talking about in this idea of the wisdom of the body and so on? Yeah. So, I mean, he, he has so much wonderful scientific information, but... I mean, he was mostly studying grazing animals um, and basically saw that, you know, in wild pastures, these animals could not only choose the appropriate food, um, they could also find medicines in the landscapes. Um, You know, if there was a particular nutritional deficiency um, in, let's say, you know, they were eating hay and it didn't have the full spectrum of nutrients they needed. Well, if they were then allowed to, you know, graze, they would be able to pick out those plants, um, that had those, um, nutrients that they were deficient in. Um, and they could also, you know, find medicines, um, and that, you know, there were also ways to trick them by, um, so, Uh, For instance, if they ate something that made them nauseous, they would think that the last thing they ate, or if they felt nauseous, they would think that the last thing that they ate was the thing that caused the nausea and then avoid it. Um, Even when, you know, for instance, these scientists, which seems kind of cruel, but um, would, you know, put um, something that created nausea within them, they would give them that substance. Um, so it wasn't actually the food that was causing the nausea, but they would still learn to avoid that. So there's, um, this understanding that, uh, they're associating their experience with the foods they're eating, which is, you know, exactly what we're talking about is, you know, ideally no scientist is, is poisoning your food, but you know, you, you eat the food and then you have the experience and you're associating that experience with the food. So then you learn, okay, this food makes me feel this way. This food satiates me in such and such a way. It provides this, these nutrients and you don't have to sit there and be able to name the nutrients, um, but your body knows and your body can then seek out the other nutrients in the environment um, or the other medicines in the environment. But 
the big problem here and, and, you know, kind of the task at hand is to basically provide the appropriate pasture, you know, for us as humans, because if we're only eating Cheetos and Doritos and, you know, Mrs. Fields, then when we're having nutritional deficiency experiences, you know, we're not going to find those nutrients in those foods. So we really do have to make sure that we're, we're eating wild foods. We're eating foods um, that are seasonal, that are local, that are organic, that are as, um, you know, close to the earth as possible. That means, you know, it's like you look at a food and you understand where it came from. Um, you know, you understand how it got to your table, right? Um, so, you know, a bag of Cheetos, well, it seems very processed, but, you know, a salad, you understand where these elements came from. Um, so that's, I mean, but his work is incredible and it does offer a lot of insight into uh, how we can better live. And that book is called Nourishment. And one of the things that that I think is so interesting about what you're saying is that we've gotten we've gotten to the point because it, it, we created a cultural problem. We've gotten to the point where it's like I can't figure out what to eat unless I go ask somebody with a PhD or an MD. So it like like what? There's no way we could have survived. And prevents us saying no. But there's a wisdom that's in bunny rabbits and everybody else. That these beings they know how to figure out what to eat, and we have to get out of what we've done to interrupt this process and get back in touch with, and this part of what I think what you were talking about earlier with becoming more sensitive and letting the body have the time. But of course, the other side of the problem is that once upon a time you came out of the womb and the food around you was the stuff that mommy and daddy ate when they made you. And they've figured it all out. Look, we've been living here for thousands of years. This is where the medicine is. This is what this is. And they, it's all just available. So there's that second wounding, you could say, that we're not doing that, but we could. I mean, there for at least some of us who have access to foods that were are grown within some relative closeness, and we could begin to move in that direction. We could even start to grow things. But it's um, that's part of what you're talking about with enlightened craving is that we could enlighten that craving pathway again so that the body could know what to crave because we gave it a chance to remember that it has these wisdom pathways. Would, would you say that that's part of it? Well, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely need to um, feed ourselves with with these you know local good quality foods so that our body has the opportunity to really learn what they're like and what they offer us. Um, and yeah, that is a big part is, you know, sampling, sampling foods and knowing, you know, in what works with you and what doesn't, um, you know, even with food sensitivities, sometimes it takes, you know, eating something several times, you know, you might have a stomach ache after you eat a salad and you're like, Oh, that's weird. I thought that was so healthy. And then, you know, you notice some random stomach aches cropping up because you're attuning to yourself and then, you know, later on you realize, oh, there was quinoa in that salad and, you know, now I'm eating quinoa and I have a terrible stomach ache and it turns out my body doesn't work with quinoa so well. Um, so maybe I'll eliminate, from that, eliminate it from my diet or at least introduce it very slowly if I do have some. So maybe, maybe my body can learn to digest it. But there is that process of I need to experiment, you know, and that's also something that nourishment talks about is, um, you know, this kind of, um, when there is nutritional deficiency, um, these animals will sample the environment if they need to. Um, they're more likely to, to fall back on foods they're familiar with, but if there's a situation where they're not getting everything they need, it's time to sample. And that's actually, I think where we are kind of, especially with our American diet is we do need to sample healthy foods in the environment and see, you know, what works well with us and what doesn't and what, um, how to change our diets based on our experience with what we're eating. Um, You've touched on some real social justice issues here too, um, because the quinoa might be something that your ancestors never ate. And then meanwhile, people whose ancestors have been eating it for centuries or millennia, they can't buy it because they have to sell it. (laughs) They're selling it all to us. And then there's this larger question about how, if we are, if we say, well, wellness is a value and well-being and health is a value, and I start to recognize that my health goes together with the health of the world and the health of other people, 
you know, because if people are being impoverished and marginalized, then they're, they're going to have to steal and so on. So I start to recognize that if I live in a happy, healthy culture and where everybody feels basically pretty good, then I'm better off. And what I'm trying to get at is the fact that there are some people who are in food deserts, you know, the easiest, most economical option for them is fast food. And, you know, of course, uh, people are trying to work on this, but man, that just seems like a big problem because it's so easy to be a wealthy uh, person or, you know, a person of a certain <laughs> um, uh, whole life situation and I can eat whatever I want and, you know, enlightened craving. How do we, how, what does enlightened craving offer for the person who's in a more difficult situation? Right. No, I mean, that's a very important question because there are a lot of neighborhoods that, you know, there's the closest grocery store is a, is a liquor store, you know, which doesn't have healthy food options and might have some, you know, not so great quality fruits or vegetables, but maybe it doesn't even, and you know, you're pulling from packaged foods and that's the closest, most affordable option. Um, it is a huge problem. Um, you know, there are a lot of um, programs building community gardens in some of these neighborhoods, which is awesome. I see that, you know, I see that in Oakland, um, for instance, but is that enough? Generally not. You know, it, it is a bigger problem and it's something that um, needs some bigger solutions. I worked for uh, CSA for a while, Community Supported Agriculture, so a big farm um, in California that is all uh, CCOF certified, which is a really high standing organic certification. It also is USDA organic, um, uses a lot of um, holistic practices and sustainable practices with how they grow food. Um, you know, they use natural pesticides and various strategies to, so they don't have to spray the plants. Um, and, you know, there was a, there was a program to be able to take uh, food stamps, for instance. Um, but, you know, actually, this is a story of failure because, you know, we were working with some of some of the communities who are more in who are located in food deserts. And even though technically our company took food stamps, that wasn't actually a practical way to implement it. And, um, you know, I worked on some of these strategies with some of the higher ups at the company and they just didn't have the interest, to be honest. You know, they didn't have the interest. And um setting up like a pickup location where everybody can go and swipe their card on one day, um, which was very disappointing for me. And I'm sure, you know, the people in the community who I had been in contact with, but um, regardless, that could be an option. You know, that's another way to do it is have these, because there are areas that have more farms, you know, more agriculturally based areas where you could actually set up a program where people could, you know, use food stamps to, to buy this produce. Um, some farmers markets do take it. I, I, I had a discussion. I had some a farmer in one of my ethics courses in the university, and, and he was talking about how uh, at the farmers markets, the, uh, I mean, I haven't registered. I, I know that I've gone to some farmers markets where I have definitely seen the sign. And I, of course, yeah. that, I don't know, Santa Cruz or California are strange cases, but yeah, that's one way. But it just seems to get us back to this point where we need to somehow think more holistically and that if we want to get out of the self-help catastrophe, as annoying as it might be to say, well, if I want to lose weight, I have to really try to think with earth and spiritual and ecological realities, it's, it's kind of bringing us back to, well, yeah, I mean, if you want to just extract your own little self-help catastrophe solution, you'll have it, but you're going to make the world worse for all of us. So at the end of the day, it's not going to really serve you. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one practice that's important is for people to grow their own food, you know, and <clears throat> most of us, I mean, I live in San Francisco in an apartment building, I could never grow all the food that I need to eat. Um, or I wouldn't, you know, have a bedroom. Um, and still there's, you know, only so much sun sunshine, so we can't really rely on that, but to grow something, to grow some plants, to have the experience of what it is to grow food, um, connects us to that larger process. And um, I mean, that to me seems like one of the biggest solutions um, available to us that we all just start growing food in the best way that we can, um, at least have some experience with it, whether, you know, sometimes sprouting things. Actually, it's pretty easy to sprout stuff. We sprout stuff in, in my apartment 
often. Um, so again, you know, a handful of sprouts is not going to feed us for very long, but at least we understand one way to create nourishment and to have that relationship um, with plants and, and with the earth. And the more people feel comfortable growing food, and then, you know, you talk to neighbors who grow food um, in, a, in a lot of areas, I mean, especially suburban areas, um, people have little yards, people could definitely create gardens, uh, create more green space and, and really share on a community based level, it would be you know, not too difficult, especially considering the technology available to, you know, list, okay, I'm growing tomatoes and, and chard, you know, and I have a lemon tree, you know, what do you have? And then do kind of a larger community share. I think that's, that's pretty available for a lot of people. Um, you know, even in food deserts, usually there's, there's some plot of land that, you know, sometimes it takes a lot of work to, to cultivate and to, you know, put, um, make into an area that's actually capable of growing food. But, um, I think there's a lot of interest in communities to, to build these spaces. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the big practices that we can do to help us understand what food is and uh, nurture our relationship with, with both the earth and with our food. Well, um, I guess we should credit Ron Finley, but maybe a lot of people have seen his TED Talk, The Gangster Gardener, who uh, was doing this work in the inner city. And so that's a really good proof that you can do a lot. If every um, lawn were a garden, if every building tried to grow some food, because that's also something that Cuba learned, you know, being so isolated, whatever you judge the regime for, um, you know, it's obviously has not been a good strategy to try to starve the people to death. So, um, yeah, U.S. policy, foreign policy is not very wise. But as a result of that pressure, out of sheer necessity, there's just probably, I've heard that like Havana is probably grows more food than any other urban area um, because everybody's just, it's rooftop, it's balconies, it's kitchen windows with herbs. And and there are those simple things you can do, like not just sprouts, but microgreens, letting actually, if you use soil and just a little bit of tray of soil, you can get microgreens, but certainly everybody can sprout. It's not that hard to do. Sometimes it depends on your kitchen and your area. You could be, it could get musty or something like that. But, but doing that can be transformative to grow anything, any food at all can be really, it's kind of astonishing that uh, I think some people discovered that during the pandemic when they needed things to do. I heard that Drew Barrymore, well, you know, became a convert to uh, gardening. But um, yeah, there's, uh, I guess, a lot that we can do, isn't there? Um, well, do you have any other uh, reflections to share about the enlightened craving process? You work with people one-on-one uh, -on -one and maybe plans for any other styles of work? Yeah, I generally work with people one-on-one, -on -one, but I think workshops and um, larger groups are actually a great uh, a great thing to offer as well. Um, it's lovely when people can actually discuss these ideas together and share community and their own, you know, as they go through their process, um, different things come up and uh, we all have a lot to learn from each other. And also, you know, makes people feel less isolated in this journey because it can be difficult. We definitely, um, you know, reach edges of our growth, which can be very jarring and upsetting and challenging. So it's good to have that community as we go through that to know that, you know, you're not alone and um, to really feel that solidarity. Um, That's a large part of what I would assume you offer. I certainly as a philosopher working with people, that's part of just having someone who can offer you guidance but then also offers you just a, a, someone bearing witness, someone just being with you and encouraging you along the path. That must be a big part of what you do with people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's important. that, But I think that, you know, goes to show that, hey, we can listen to ourselves too. You know, we have this outer guidance, but we also have inner guidance. And that's that's a big part of this process is, really learning how to listen to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, marvelous. I will put uh, contact information 
for you, Leah, in the show notes. Uh, you'll find those at dangerouswisdom.org. And if you want to work with Leah for your health and healing and the planet's health and healing, you can get in touch. Do you want to, is there any contact info you want to put here, Leah? An email address? Um, sure. My email is leah.rubinoff at gmail.com and it's leah, L-I-A dot R-U-B-I-N-O-F-F at gmail.com. Rub in off. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been delightful as always, Leah. And uh, maybe we'll just um, talk again sometime and shoot the philosophical breeze. But uh, thank in the meantime, thanks for joining us. And if any of you out there have any questions, reflections, comments, stories of enlightened craving or just craving that you want enlightened, but it's not enlightened yet, you can send in your thoughts, reflections, questions uh, through dangerouswisdom.org and maybe we'll be able to bring Leah back if there's lots of questions or I can try philosophically to address some of them in a future episode. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.